Chapter Ten, Part Two of the Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Alschiller. Chapter Ten: The Northern March, Part Two. The great adventure had now begun but it was not unknown to Hooker and his watchful generals on the other shore. The ground was dry, and they had seen a column of dust rise and move toward the northwest. Their experienced eyes told them that such a cloud must be made by marching troops, and the men in the balloons with their glasses were able to catch the gleam of steel from the bayonets of Longstreet's men as they took the long road to Gettysburg. Hooker had good men with him, he, too, as he stood on the left bank of the Rappahannock, was surrounded by able and famous generals, and others were to come. There was Meade, a little older than the others, but not old, tall, thin, stooped a bit, wearing glasses, and looking like a scholar with his pale face and ragged beard, a cold, quiet man, able and thorough, but without genius. Then came Reynolds, modest and quiet, who many in the army claimed would have shown the genius that Meade lacked had it not been for his early death, for he too, like Pender, would soon be riding to a soldier's grave. And then were Doubleday and Newton and Hancock, a great soldier, a man of magnificent presence, whose air and manner always inspired enthusiasm, soon to be known as Hancock the Superb, Sedgwick, a soldier of great insight and tenacity, Howard, a religious man who was to come out of the war with only one arm, Hunt and Gibbon and Webb and Sykes and Slocum and Pleasanton, who commanded the cavalry and many others. These men foresaw the march of Lee into the north, and the people behind them realized that they were no longer carrying the battle to the enemy. He was bringing it to them. Apprehension spread through the north, but it was prepared for the supreme effort. The Army of the Potomac, despite Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, had no fear of its opponent, and the veterans in blue merely asked for another chance. On the following morning, and the morning after, Ewell's corps followed Longstreet in two divisions toward the general rendezvous at Culpeper Courthouse. But Lee himself, although most of his troops were now gone, did not yet move. Hill's corps had been held to cover any movement of the Army of the Potomac at Fredericksburg, and Lee and his staff remained there for three days after Longstreet's departure. The Invincibles had gone, but Harry and Dalton were just behind Lee, who sat on his white horse, Traveler, gazing through his glasses toward a division of the Army of the Potomac, which on the day before had crossed the Rappahannock, under a heavy fire from Hill's men. But Harry knew that it was no part of Lee's plan to drive these men back across the river. A. P. Hill on the heights would hold them and would be a screen between Hooker's army and his own. So the young staff officer merely watched his commander who looked long through his glasses. It was now nearly noon, and the June sky was brilliant with the sun moving slowly toward the zenith. Lee at length lowered his glasses and, turning to his staff, said, Now, gentlemen, we ride. Harry, by some chance, looked at his watch and he always remembered that it was exactly noon when he started on the journey that was to lead him to Gettysburg. He and Dalton, from a high crest, looked back toward the vast panorama of hills, valleys, rivers, and forests that had held for them so many thrilling and terrible memories. 
There lay the blackened ruins of Fredericksburg. There were the heights against which the brave northern brigades had beat in vain, and with such awful losses. And beyond, far down under the horizon, was the tragic wilderness in which they had won Chancellorsville, and in which Jackson had fallen. Harry choked and turned away from the fresh wound that the recollection gave him. Lee and his staff rode hard all that afternoon and most of the night through territory guarded well against northern skirmishers or raiding bands, and the next day they were with the army at Culpeper Courthouse. Meanwhile, Hooker was undecided whether to follow Lee or move on Richmond, but the shrewd Lincoln telegraphed him that Lee was his true objective. At that moment, the man in the White House at Washington was the most valuable general the North had knowing that Lee in the field with his great fighting force must be beaten back, and that otherwise Richmond would be worth nothing. It was Harry's fortune in the most impressionable period of life to be in close contact for a long time with two very great men, both of whom had had an influence upon him, creating for him new standards of energy and conduct. In after years, when he thought of Lee and Jackson, which was nearly every day, no wane of the causes involved in the quarrel between the sections was made in his mind. They were his heroes, and personally they could do no wrong. As Lee rode on with his staff through the fair Virginia country, he talked little, but more than was Jackson's custom. Harry saw his brow wrinkle now and then with thought. He knew that he was planning, planning all the time, and he knew, too, what a tremendous task it was to bring all the scattered divisions of an army to one central point in the face of an active enemy. This task was even greater than Harry imagined, as Lee's army would soon be strung along a line of a hundred miles. And a far-seeing enemy might cut it apart and beat it in detail. Lee knew, but he showed no sign. Harry felt an additional elation because he rode westward and toward that valley in which he had followed Jackson through the thick of great achievements. In the north they had nicknamed it the Valley of Humiliation. But Jackson was gone, and Milroy, whom he had defeated once, was there again, holding and ruling the little city of Winchester. Harry's blood grew hot, because he too, as Jackson had, loved Winchester. He did not know what was in Lee's mind, but he hoped that a blow would be struck at Milroy before they began the great invasion of the North. Culpeper was a tiny place, a courthouse, and not much more. But now its eager and joyous citizens welcomed a great army. Although Hill and his corps were yet back watching Hooker, fifty thousand veterans were gathered at the village. Soon they would be seventy thousand or more, and Culpeper rejoiced yet again. The women and children, the men were but few, gone to the war, were never too tired to seek glimpses of the famous generals whom they regarded as their champions. Stuart, in his brilliant uniform, at the head of his great cavalry command, appealed most to the young, and his gay spirit and frank manners delighted everybody. They paid little attention to the northern cavalry and infantry on the other side of the Rappahannock, knowing that Hooker's main army was yet far away, and feeling secure in the protection of Lee and his victorious army. Harry slept heavily that night, wearied by the long ride. He, Dalton, and two other young officers had been assigned to a small tent, but taking their blankets they slept under the stars. Harry seldom cared for a roof now on a dry, warm night. He had become so much used to hardships and unlimited spaces that he preferred his blankets and the free breezes that blew about the world. 
It was a long time after the war before he became thoroughly reconciled to bedrooms in warm weather. He was aroused the next morning by Dalton, who pulled him by his feet out of his blankets. "'Stick your head in a pail of water,' said Dalton, "'and get your breakfast as soon as you can. Everything is waiting on you.' "'How dare you, George, drag me by the heels that way. I was marching down Broadway in New York at the head of our conquering army, and millions of Yankees were pointing at me, all saying with one voice, "'That's the fellow that beat us.' Now you've spoiled my triumph, and what do you mean by saying that everything is waiting for me? Our army, as you know, is spectacular only in its achievements, but today we intend to have a little splendor. The commander-in-chief is going to review Jeb Stuart's cavalry. For dramatic effect, it's a chance that Stuart won't miss. And that's so. Just tell him I'm coming and that the parade can begin. Harry bathed his face and had a good breakfast, but there was no need to hurry. Jeb Stuart, as Dalton had predicted, was making the most of his chance. He was going not only to the parade, but to have a mock battle as well. As the sun rose higher, making the June day brilliant, General Lee and his staff, dressed in their best, rode slowly to a little hillock, commanding a splendid view of a wide plain lying east of Culpeper Courthouse. General Lee was in a fine uniform, his face shaded by the brim of the gray hat which pictures have made so familiar. His cavalry cape swung from his shoulders, but not low enough to hide the splendid sword at his belt. His face was grave, and his whole appearance was majestic. If only Jackson were there, riding by his side. Harry choked again. Lee sat on his white horse, Traveler, and above him on a lofty pole a brilliant Confederate flag waved in the light wind. Harry and Dalton, as the youngest, took their modest places in the rear of the group of staff officers, just behind Lee and look expectantly over the plain. They saw at the far edge a long line of horsemen, so long, in fact, that the eye did not travel its full distance. Nearer by, all the guns of Stuart's horse artillery were posted upon a hill. Harry's heart began to beat at the sight. Mimic, not real, war, but thrilling nevertheless. A bugle suddenly sounded far away, its note coming low but mellow. Other bugles along the line sang the same tune, and then came rolling thunder as ten thousand matchless horsemen, led by Stuart himself, charged over the plain straight toward the hill on which Lee sat on his horse. The horsemen seemed to Harry to rise as if they were coming up the curve of the earth. It was a tremendous and thrilling sight. The hooves of ten thousand horses beat in unison. Every man held the loft his saber and the sun struck upon their blades and glanced off in a midrid brilliant beams. Harry glanced at Lee, and he saw that the blue eyes were gleaming. He, too, sober and quiet though he was, felt pride as the Murat of the South led on his legions. The cavalrymen, veering a little, charged toward the guns on the hill, and they received them with a discharge of blank cartridges, which made the plain shake. Back and forth the mimic battle rolled charge and repulse, and the smoking of the firing drifted over the plain. But the wild horsemen wheeled and turned, always keeping place with such superb skill that the officers and the infantry looking on burst again and again into thunderous applause. The display lasted some time. When it was over and the smoke and dust were settling, General Lee and his staff rode back to their quarters. The young officers filled with pride at the spectacle, and more confident than ever that their coming invasion of the North 
would be the final triumph. Northern cavalry on the other side of the river had heard the heavy firing, and they could not understand it. Could their forces following Lee on the right bank be engaged in battle with him? They had not heard of any such advance by their own men, yet they plainly heard the sounds of a heavy cannonade, and it was a matter into which they must look. They had disregarded sharp firing too often before, and they were growing wary. But with the wariness also came a daring which the Union leaders in the East had not usually shown hitherto. They had a strong cavalry force in three divisions on the other side of the river, and the commanders of the divisions, Buford, Gregg, and Duffy, with Pleasanton overall, were forming a bold design. Events were to move fast for Harry, much faster than he was expecting. He was sent that night with a note to Stuart, who went into camp with his ten thousand cavalry and thirty guns, on a bare eminence called Fleetwood Hill. The base of the hill was surrounded by forest, and not far away was a little place called Brandy Station. Harry was not to return until morning, as he had been sent late with a message, and after delivering it to Stuart, he hunted up his friend, Sherburne. He found the captain sitting by a low campfire, and he was made welcome. Sherburne, after the parade and sham battle, had cleaned the dust from his uniform, and he was now as neat and trim as St. Clair himself. "'Sit down, Harry,' he said, with the greatest geniality. "'Here, orderly, take his horse, but leave him his blankets. You'll need the blankets tonight, Harry, because you bunk with us in the end of the greenwood tree. We've got a special tree, too. See it there, the oak with the great branches.' I'll never ask anything better in summertime, provided it doesn't rain, said Harry. Wasn't that a fine parade, Sherburne ran on, and this is the greatest cavalry force that we've had during the war. Why, Stuart can go anywhere and do anything with it. A lot of Virginia scouts under Jones are watching the fords, and we've got with us such leaders as Fitz Lee, Robertson, Hampton, and the commander-in-chief's son, W.H.F. Lee. Why should a man be burdened with three initials? We can take care of any cavalry force that the Yankees may send against us. I've noticed in the recent fighting, said Harry, that the northern cavalrymen are a lot better than they used to be. Most of us were born in the saddle, but they had to learn to ride. They'll give us a tough fight now whenever we meet them. I agree with you, said Sherburne, but they can't beat us. You can ride back in the morning, Harry, and report to the commander-in-chief that he alone can move us from this position. Listen to that stamping of hoofs. Among ten thousand horses, a lot are likely to be restless. And look there at the hilltop, where thirty good guns are ready to turn their mouths on any foe. I see them all, said Harry, and I think you're right. I'll ride back peacefully to General Lee in the morning, and tell him that I left ten thousand cavalrymen lying lazily on the grass, and ten thousand horses eating their heads off near Brandy Station. But tonight you rest, said one of the young officers. Do you smoke? I've never learned. Well, I don't smoke either unless we get them from the Yankees. That's what's left of a box that we picked up near the Chancellor House. It may have belonged to old Joe Hooker himself, but if so, he'll never get it back again. He distributed the cigars among the smokers, who puffed them with content. Meanwhile, the noises of the camp sank, and presently Harry, taking his blankets and saying good night, went to sleep in the end of the greenwood tree. End of chapter 10, part 2 Recording by Rick Cornwall